You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. So I used to listen to this band called Dashboard Confessional. Maybe some of you guys have heard of them. I used to listen to them all the time. And they had this song, and the lyrics went like this. It said, is there anything worth looking for, worth waiting for, worth living for, worth dying for? Uh, Before I'd ever heard that song, I remember being a teenager and pondering that question for myself. You know, is there anything that I would be willing to give my life for? Is there any cause that is so worthy? Is there any principle that is so important? Is there anything that I believe in and care about so much that I would be willing to fight for it? I'd be willing to suffer for it? I'd be willing to give up everything for it? And if need be, I'd even be willing to die for it. If you look around the world, what you'll see, if you look at history also, you'll find that that is what people in every generation have asked themselves. Is there anything out there that truly matters? Is there anything out there that is worth giving everything for? You know, there are a lot of causes that people care deeply about, from loved ones and family to patriotism to civil liberties and personal freedoms to politics and even environmentalism. There's a famous quote by an anonymous author that says this, find something worth dying for and then live for it. And I think that every person at certain points in our lives, we stop and we wonder, okay, what is it that really matters? Is there anything that is so true? Is there anything that is so important that it would be worth giving everything for the sake of that cause? You know, we live in a culture which encourages us to live for ourselves and to seek out our own personal fulfillment. But the problem is that all of us, in our heart of hearts, we long for something that's bigger than ourselves. We long for something more. We long for something that is worthy of giving ourselves for, something that matters so much that it's worth sacrificing for. And living only for yourselves, I think we all know that and we feel that that is far too shallow. You know, when we ask the question, we long for more, and we ask the question, is there anything that's so big, so true, so important that it's worth dying for? Because if there is, then that's the thing that we should be living for. Today in our study of the book of Acts, we're going to see a person who gave his life for something he believed in, for something he cared about even more than his own life. And as we do, I pray that it would challenge us to think and consider for ourselves, what was it about this man and what was it about what he believed that enabled him to live with that much conviction? Is he a fool for what he did or is he a hero and a role model? The person we're talking about is a man named Stephen. We met Stephen for the first time last week. And what we saw when we first saw him in Acts chapter 6 is that he started out serving in the church in very practical ways. And as Stephen was faithful with those small things that God entrusted him with, he was then entrusted with greater responsibility and greater service. And that's always how it works, by the way. If you're not faithful in the little things that God puts in front of you, he's not going to entrust you with more. But if you are faithful with whatever God has placed before you, in time, as he sees fit, he may entrust you with greater things. So Stephen started out serving tables, and as he was faithful with that, the next time we see him, now he's preaching the word. He's an evangelist. He's an apologist. He's someone who talks to people about Jesus, appealing to their reason and their logic. And we left off last week in Acts chapter 6, verse 10, where we saw Stephen speaking to a particular group of people, and they were unable to argue, they were unable to refute what he was saying about Jesus, that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, and that they needed to put their faith in him and become Christians. Stephen made such a good case for it, such a strong case for it, that they couldn't argue 
argue with him, but yet we read this in the very next verse, in verse 11 of chapter 6, that they then secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the crowd saw that his face was like the face of an angel. These people couldn't argue with Stephen's logic, but rather than receive what he was telling them about Jesus, they sought to get rid of him by having him arrested on trumped up charges of blasphemy. So here's Stephen. He's standing now before this council of the Jewish leaders and the elders. It's called the Sanhedrin. And I don't want to ruin the story for you, but I'm going to. He, it's not going to turn out well, right? He's going to become the very first Christian martyr, the very first person to die for his faith in Jesus Christ. Now at the beginning of the book of Acts, we read this statement from Jesus. He told his disciples, he said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. What's interesting is that in Greek, that word translated witnesses, it's the Greek word martis, from which we get our English word martyr. A martyr is a person who not only proclaims what they believe with words, but they live it out with their life. They believe it so strongly that if necessary, they would even die for what they believe. You see, a martyr didn't become a, a martyr by dying for their faith. Rather, the reason they were willing to die for their faith was because they already were a martyr. They were a martyr. They were a witness. And that is what Jesus called all of his disciples to be. Not only people who proclaim what they believe, but people who live what they believe and who believe it so strongly that if necessary, they would even die for what they believe. What Jesus had given these people was something which was so profound, something so meaningful, something so significant, something so important that it was worth living for and it was even worth dying for. And Stephen would be the first Christian to seal his testimony with his blood, but he certainly wouldn't be the last. So as we look at this chapter, we're going to consider what Stephen says in response to these accusations that are made against him. And what we're going to see is that he uses this opportunity to tell these people about Jesus. He's got their attention. Instead of defending himself, he's going to tell them about Jesus. The title of today's message is Something Worth Dying For. In verse 1 of chapter 7, we read this. The high priest said to Stephen, Are these things so? And in what follows now, Stephen is going to give his response to the charges that he has been accused of. Again, rather than defending himself, Stephen is going to use this opportunity to talk to these people about Jesus and why they should put their faith in him. They've accused him of speaking against the temple and against Moses, which they say equates to blasphemy. So he's going to talk to them now about the temple and about Moses. This is a very long speech, so I want to give you a couple outlines here to help you wrap your head around it because we're not going to be able to read every verse uh, because it's so long. He's going to go back through Jewish history and he's going to go through all of Jewish history and he's got two things that he wants to show them from Jewish history. Number one, he wants to show them that God has never been restricted to certain places. The second thing he wants to show them is that the Jewish people have a history of disobeying God and rejecting the people that God sends to them the first time around, which is exactly what they've done with Jesus. 
So again, this is a big section, so let me give you an outline to help you navigate it. What Stephen's going to do is he's going to review Jewish history, and he's going to break it down into four major periods, each of which is represented by a major figure. So we're going to see it like this. First, he's going to talk about Abraham and the patriarchal age. Then he's going to talk about Joseph and the Egyptian exile. Then he's going to talk about Moses and the exodus and the wilderness wandering. And then he's going to talk about David and the monarchy. Okay, let's begin in verse 2. Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people both physically and spiritually. And the question is this, where did God appear to Abraham? Did he appear to him in a temple? No, he didn't appear to him in a temple. He didn't appear to him in any kind of building. He didn't appear to him even in the promised land. He appeared to him in Mesopotamia. That's modern day Iraq. Now if you would indulge me just for a moment, I'm going to go off track here for a second. I love this word Mesopotamia and let me tell you why. Because there was a great preacher in early American history named George Whitfield, and he's a personal hero of mine. In fact, the name of our church, right, Whitefields, on the one hand, it comes from the saying of Jesus, which is on your bulletin, right, that the fields are white for the harvest. But in another way, it's also kind of a shout out to this man, George Whitfield, the British evangelist who came to America to preach the gospel and who was the catalyst for what's known as the first great awakening, which is the time when many people in our country came to living faith in Jesus Christ. But one of the things that was said about George Whitfield by people who heard him preach, they said he was such a powerful orator that he could make audiences weep or tremble just by the way he said the word Mesopotamia. So when I read that word Mesopotamia, I hope it just makes you want to tremble and weep, right? Uh, it makes me think of George Whitfield. But here's the point of what Stephen is saying here. He's saying God spoke to Abraham. When? At a time when there were no traditions, at a, in a place where there was no temple. He spoke to him in, in Mesopotamia, in Iraq, right? What Stephen is saying is that God, he's a free-range God. He does whatever he wants. He goes wherever he wants. You see, these people's fear was that Jesus and his followers didn't care about their traditions. They didn't care about the temple. They didn't care about the sacrificial system. But what Stephen is saying here is he's saying, look at your own history. God is not confined to your traditions. He's not confined to your particular place where you think he's confined to. Verse 4. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Okay, there's another thing that Stephen's pointing out about Abraham. And that's this, that Abraham did not obey God perfectly. Remember what God told him. God told him, leave your family and go to Canaan. Two things, leave your family, go to Canaan. What did Abraham do? Well, he took his cousin and his dad and he went to Haran, which is not Canaan, right? So what does that tell us? It tells us that Abraham, this man that we revere as a great man of faith, a man who obeyed God, he wasn't perfect. His obedience wasn't perfect. His faith wasn't perfect. And so Abraham's relationship with God then is based on what? From start to finish, it's based purely on God's grace, not on Abraham's merits. God is the one who initiated with Abraham. Abraham wasn't looking for God. God was looking for Abraham. He pursued Abraham. He called him out and God was patient with Abraham even when Abraham didn't obey him perfectly. 
You see, that idea of the patience and the grace of God towards those who don't obey him at first perfectly, that's a major theme of what Stephen wants to say to these Jewish leaders because, you see, these people rejected Jesus. And Stephen is saying, look, guys, you're not the first ones. You're not the first ones to not get it the first time around. Even Abraham failed to obey God the first time around, but God was patient with him, and God will be patient with you too. And maybe there are some of you here today, and that, that's you. That's the story of your life. That's maybe even where you're at right now. You're like Abraham. You're living in Haran with your dad and your cousin, even though God told you to go and leave your family behind and go to Canaan. You know what God wants you to do, but you haven't done it. And that's an important message that God wants you to know, that it's not too late to turn around. He's still ready to deal with you. It's not too late to change that and bring your life into submission and obedience to his perfect will. So Stephen continues on, and in the next great figure, uh, the next major period, he's looking at Joseph and the Egyptian exile. Please go down with me to verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Again, remember the great theme of this section. Notice what Stephen says. God was with Joseph. Where? Not in the promised land, not in the temple. He was with him in Egypt, that godless pagan place. God was with Joseph in Egypt because God, he's a free-range God. He goes wherever he wants and he does whatever he wants. He, he's not confined to particular places. And notice this, some very bad things happened to Joseph, didn't they? Right? His brothers sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. But God used all of those things for Joseph's good, for the good of the people, and for God's ultimate purposes. That's something we call the providence of God. That God is at work in the details, behind the scenes, in the circumstances of our lives. He is ordaining things. He is working things according to his grand plan. Read from verse 11 with me, please. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could not find food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Once again, what is the theme here? Joseph's brothers rejected him at first, but later on they realized that Joseph was actually the one appointed by God to save them. They had done wrong. They had rejected Joseph, but God was gracious to them and gave them another chance to be saved. Okay, we're going to go down to verse 17 now. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, and he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. Verse 23, when he was 
40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. This is Moses, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men and brothers, why are you doing wrong to each other? But the man who was, wronged, who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Verse 29. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. The third great figure here in Israel's history is Moses. Moses was also sent to the people by God to deliver them and to save them. But once again, they rejected him just like they rejected Joseph. Verse 30, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Sinai in the flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight and drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and have come to deliver them, and now I will send you to Egypt. Again, where did God appear to Moses? Not in a temple, not in the promised land, in the wilderness, in Sinai. He's a free-range God. He's the Lord of all the earth. He's not limited to certain buildings or places. He goes wherever he wants. He does whatever he wants. But here's the bigger point that Stephen's making. In each of these instances, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, God came to them. God went to them. You see, you see the, for the Jews, the mentality they had about the temple was that the temple is the place where you have to come to meet with God. But do you see this difference, this contrast he's making? It's the contrast between you have to come to God and the contrast of God has come to you. Because let me tell you, that is the story of the gospel. That is the story of Jesus Christ, that God has come to us. That he loves you so much that he pursued you even when you weren't pursuing him. To the point where he, the God, of heaven became a man to reveal himself to us and to save us. So Stephen is speaking to them from their own history to show them that God is a, not a God who waits for us to come to him, but he is a God who comes to us, who passionately pursues us, who reveals himself to us, and who saves us. And that is what he has done in this ultimate way in Jesus Christ. You see, as Stephen is recalling the history of Israel, he's looking at each of these figures and he's seeing Jesus, right? He looks at Abraham and he sees the God who appears to us. He looks at Joseph and he sees the God who is with us. He looks at Moses and he sees the God who delivers us. And you know what he's doing? He's showing these people from their own history that who Jesus is and what he did is completely consistent with what God has done throughout history. That God has always come to his people. God has always sought to reveal himself to his people and to save them from the curse of sin and death. Let's read verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who has made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. Moses was a prince of Egypt. He had all the comforts and all the privileges of royalty. But you know what he did? Out of compassion and out of love for his brethren, he gave up his royal throne 
And he came down from that royal throne out of love for them to deliver them from bondage. Isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us? But Moses, here's what happened. When he did that, he was rejected by his brethren. And not only was he rejected, he was rejected with spite. They said, we will not have this man be a ruler and a judge over us. Now, do you, do you get what Stephen's saying here? Do you understand this message that he's presenting here? What he's saying is this. You guys have rejected Jesus. Jesus is the one we're talking about here. Just like your forefathers rejected Moses the first time Moses came to them, just like your forefathers rejected Joseph the first time Joseph came to them, you're doing the same thing now with Jesus that your fathers did to those guys. But see, look, this is actually a great message of grace and it's a message of hope because here's what Stephen's saying. He's saying, even though our fathers rejected Joseph and rejected Moses the first time around, God gave them another chance. God gave them another chance to receive those saviors, those deliverers, and be saved. And they did. They reconsidered. They changed their minds. And as a result, they were saved. And that same thing can happen for you. He says, you guys have rejected Jesus, just like your fathers rejected Joseph, just like they rejected Moses the first time around. But just like they later accepted Joseph and later accepted Moses, now is the opportunity for you to do the same thing with Jesus. He says, you rejected him at first, but it's not too late to change your mind. It's not too late to reconsider in light of all of these things and realize that Jesus is the Savior appointed by God for you. And you rejected him, but it's not too late to change your mind. He's saying God hasn't given up on you. God hasn't said, okay, make your choice. Then you made your choice and he said, fine. You don't choose him, well, then you're done. No, not at all. He says God is still standing there with arms wide open, ready to receive you and save you if you will turn to him today. Now, isn't that an incredible thing? How many of us, I know it was true of me, but how many of us accepted Jesus after initially rejecting him? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that grace? Do any of us deserve that? That we would say no and that God would still be that patient with us and that gracious with us? That at one time we would have said about Jesus, no thanks, I don't want it, I don't need it, I will not have that man rule over me. But yet God was so patient and God was so gracious that he continued to pursue us, he continued to speak to us and continued to extend the opportunity and the invitation to be saved. But that first time around, we, we said no. But here's the other thing. You must also recognize that there will be an end to that somewhere. For each of us, there is an end to that somewhere. For each of us, there will be a last time that we will be invited to receive that salvation, that grace of God. There will be a last time someday. That it was, that's the last time when we're invited to receive the gift of grace and salvation from God. And I wonder if there are any of you here today, and that's exactly where you're at, right? Jesus came to be your Savior. He is the Savior appointed by God for you, but you have rejected him as Lord over you. You have said, I will not have that man rule over me. But the truth is that one day, it's going to be too late. He's extending that invitation. It's open to you today, but one day, it's going to be too late. And I don't know when that day is going to be. I don't know, but there's no point in waiting, let me tell you that. 
Because even if you've rejected Jesus before, if you said, no thanks, I won't have that man rule over me, let me tell you what, it's not too late to reconsider. It's not too late to change your mind and receive him as your Savior and your Lord. That was Stephen's message to them. It's a message of grace and it's a message of hope. Verse 37, please read with me. He says this, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Okay, the Old Testament is full of promises of the Messiah, the Savior, who God would one day send to set the people free from this ultimate bondage, the bondage of sin and death, and who would usher in a kingdom, a new kingdom, an everlasting kingdom in which death will be no more, where things will finally be made right. And one of these promises of the Messiah was a promise that God would send them another prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. You see, Moses was unique as a leader of Israel in in that he had three distinct roles. On the one hand, he was a prophet. He was one who spoke the words of God. On the other hand, he was a priest, right? He mediated between God and the people. And thirdly, he was a sort of king. He was a ruler who had authority. And he's saying that is who the Messiah will be. There's a Messiah coming who will be prophet, priest and king. He will be a prophet who speaks to you the words of God. He will be a priest who mediates between God and man and he will be a king, a ruler with great authority. That Messiah is coming. And so Stephen brings up this promise which is found in the book of Deuteronomy. And Stephen brings this up and he says this, you're accusing me of speaking against Moses. Well here's the deal guys, Moses is great but Even Moses said that one was coming who was greater than him. Moses himself looked forward to someone who was greater than him. It's not Moses that you should be focused on. It's the greater than Moses who you should be focused on. That's the one Moses himself was looking to. It's not Moses you should follow. It is the greater than Moses who you should be most concerned about following. And he has now come and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. From verse 39, let's read. Actually, I'm just going to tell you here. From verse 39, Stephen then begins to tell them the story of how the people, after they initially accepted Moses as their deliverer, even after they accepted him, the people then turned away from God and made a golden calf and they worshipped it. And yet, even in spite of that, God did not give up on them. And when they turned back to him, God received them back. For some of you, maybe that's your story. There have been times in your life when you have, after starting to follow Jesus, you have turned back to the old ways. You've done regrettable things which you had supposedly put behind you already. This story reminds us that there is grace and forgiveness for those who turn to Jesus, even if you've turned to him once and then gone back to the old ways. If you will come to him, there is grace and forgiveness for you. From verse 44, we read this, that Stephen reminds them of the history of the temple. From the building of the tabernacle in the times of Moses to the building of the temple, which was thought about, conceived by David, and then finally built by Solomon. But here's the thing he says after that in verse 48. He says, even after the temple was built, God declared that he was too great to be limited to a particular place or building. Let's read from verse 48 says this, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my place of rest? Did not my hands make all these things? And now, Stephen's going to bring it all home 
right? He's going to drive it home. And here's what happens in verse 51. He says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you re- and you who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Stephen's saying, look, you accuse me of speaking against the temple and speaking against the forefathers. I haven't done those things, but let me tell you this. Even if I had done those things, tell me, what is worse, speaking against a building or resisting the Holy Spirit? Which is worse, speaking against the forefathers and the traditions or resisting the Holy Spirit and rejecting the Savior that God sent for you? Stephen's using strong words. His goal is to move these people to repentance, to reconsider Jesus whom they've rejected, that they might recognize him as Messiah and receive him as Savior. But that's not what happens. Read with me in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul." These people couldn't argue with Stephen's logic and that made them so angry. They didn't have any response and they just got angrier and angrier and more frustrated. These are the kind of people who say, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. And so when Stephen said that he could see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, well, that was the final straw. They couldn't take it anymore. It says that they plugged their ears. They stuck their fingers in their ears and they ran at him just to get him. They rushed him. Now, remember, this isn't a group of street thugs that we're talking about here. This is the Sanhedrin, right? These are the elders of the people. These are the religious leaders. This would be like if you were standing in front of Congress, And maybe you've seen these videos of European parliaments, right? Where these dignified men in these suits, they get so angry about something that they jump the tables and they just start brawling with each other. That's exactly what you should picture here. Dignified men, unable to take it anymore, plugging their ears, jumping over the tables, except they're not fighting with each other. They're all going after Stephen. And it says they take him outside of the city and they throw rocks at him until he died. Incredibly brutal. Read with me from verse 58. They cast him out of the city, they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What an incredible contrast between Stephen and those who killed him. They're so angry that they've lost their minds. But here Stephen is at peace. He dies and he falls asleep. This is peaceful. Here he is losing his life and with his final breath, like Jesus, he prays for those who are killing him. And we read this, a young man was there enthusiastically supporting the killing of Stephen. He was a young man named Saul. We're going to read a lot more about him in the chapters to come. 
But here's Stephen, the first Christian martyr, certainly not the last. As a result of this, we're going to see in our study next week in chapter 8, we're going to see a great persecution now begins against the Christian church. A lot of Christians are going to die for their faith. They're going to be hunted down in their houses and dragged out of their homes. Some of them will be killed. And as a result, many people are going to flee from Jerusalem to avoid this persecution. And until now, the Christian movement has been exclusively based in Jerusalem. But let me remind you of this. Do you remember the words of Jesus to his disciples? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So far, they've only been in Jerusalem. But as a result of Stephen's speech here, now this persecution is going to come against the Christians and the Christians are going to flee from Jerusalem. And guess where they're going to go? To Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, these people who sought to destroy Christianity by threatening the lives of the Christians, what they actually did was they caused Christianity to spread and to grow from a localized movement centered only in Jerusalem now to a worldwide movement spreading across the globe, which had been God's plan all along. See, Tertullian, he was an early church father. He wrote in the second century when Christians were being persecuted and killed in some places, including where he lived, which was in North Africa near the city of Carthage. And he wrote this to those who were persecuting Christians. He said this, you cannot exterminate us. The more you kill us, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Did you know that the 20th century saw more Christians martyred than any other century previously? That's probably because there were more Christians in the world than at any other time previously. Did you know that this still goes on even in our day in the 21st century? You've probably read about it in the news. But it does beg the question, what is it about Christianity that all these people would be so willing to lay down their lives for this? It would seem that these people have found that thing, that something which everyone in the world is looking for, that thing which is so important, that is so big, that it's worth living for, it's even worth dying for. I remember in in my own life coming to this conclusion that if I was going to give my life for any cause, it would have to be a cause of supreme importance, something that would have a lasting impact that would be bigger than my life. And it was when I came to understand and know the gospel message of Jesus Christ that I found the thing that is worth living for, that is even worth dying for. When I came to know that there is a cause that is so great that God himself is involved in it, a cause of supreme importance, which relates to issues of life and death, but not only that, but even issues of eternity. It's a cause which has an eternal impact, not only in my life, but in the lives of other people who are touched by it. That God came to rescue sinners and that anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus can be forgiven and can be redeemed and saved. That is a cause that truly matters. That is something worth living for. That's something even worth dying for. Jesus told this parable. In Matthew chapter 13, he said this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who upon finding a pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. See, that's an interesting parable because it has a dual message. On the one hand, it's saying this, God considers you so precious that he was willing to give up everything in order to make you his own. And he loves you so much that he did it with great joy. 
But on the other hand, it's also saying this, that for you, the gift of God, knowing God, being redeemed, being forgiven, having eternal life, that is a treasure which is so great that if you could only begin to understand just how great it is, you would be willing to give up everything for the sake of it and do so with joy. The message of the gospel is that God loves you so much that he gave everything in order to save you and redeem you and make you his own. And the call of the gospel is that you give your whole life to him who gave his whole life for you. In the early centuries of Christianity, persecution wasn't widespread. A lot of people think that, you know, everybody was getting killed all the time. Well, that wasn't exactly the case. Persecution wasn't widespread in the early centuries of Christianity. It happened in very localized places and for limited times. It happened sporadically. But there was this concept that developed in the early Christian church of red martyrs and white martyrs. Red martyrs, obviously, are those who shed their blood because of their faithfulness to following Jesus Christ. But white martyrs are those who didn't shed their blood because they just simply didn't live in a place where Christians were persecuted. But they were white martyrs because even though they didn't shed their blood, they too gave their entire lives to Christ. And let me tell you this, I think they got it right. They understood what it means to be a Christian. Either you're a red martyr or you're a white martyr, but either way, you're a martyr. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It means to give your entire life to Christ. That's what Paul the Apostle is writing about to the Galatians where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what Paul the Apostle is talking about in 2 Corinthians where he says this, that Jesus died, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Today after service, we're going down to Gaynor Lake and we're going to have a baptism. And baptism, Paul the Apostle tells us in Romans chapter 6, which we're going to read down at the lake, baptism is a picture of death. It's a picture of death as you go under the water and it's a picture of being born again to new life as you come out of the water. And this new life that we have because of Jesus is a new life that we get to enjoy now, redeemed and forgiven, but it's also a life that will last forever, eternal life. And that is why people like Stephen could have peace even as they're being stoned to death. This is the reason why Christians throughout history have given their whole lives for the promise and the hope and the cause of the gospel. And let me tell you this, there is nothing else more worthy of giving your entire life for. Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you for the witness and the testimony of this man, Stephen. Lord, we look at this and we are, are so impressed by the way that he was able to look death in the face and, and have peace and rest in his heart. Lord, what kind of hope does this man have that he's able to do something like that? And Lord, may we too know that hope down in our hearts. Lord, that in the trials that we face day to day, Lord, that we would have that same hope, that we'd have that same peace in our hearts, that we would know our future because of Jesus Christ, that we would understand it and that we would rejoice in it. And Lord, we this morning we want to say we don't want to be like those people who rejected you and just closed their ears and said I don't want to hear it anymore we want to be those people who say even if in the past I've said no to Jesus today I say yes 
for the first time or for the 500th time, we say yes to Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for such a great Savior and such a great salvation. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.